So you have your gene, two strands. And one of the things that's important here is your bottom strand, your top strand is usually five prime in to begin with, three prime here. Bottom strand, five prime in, and three prime here. People use different terminology to refer to these strands. So the template strand is the anti-sense strand. It will be uh, translated. The non-template strand, obviously, is the other one. And this is referred to as either the coding strand or the sense strand. So the important thing is that your messenger RNA is going to be from translation of this template strand, of this non-template strand. Okay, so after transcription, right, we have our RNA, and then there's <coughs> translation, with, which Dr. Albritton will go through with you. Uh, and that makes protein, here we just got a little fragment, uh, by translation of this RNA. Proteins start at the N-terminus and end at the C-terminus. So it's important to keep those straight or it will get tricky. Alright, so prokaryotic gene structure. What we are looking at is the DNA sequence here, the coding region, and the coding region is usually about three times as long, three to five times as long, as you see in this diagram relative to the other uh, things that they're showing. There's intergene in DNA. You then have the promoter here in purple. And the plus one is the first base of the messenger RNA, or any RNA. Uh, you go through your coding region, there's a termination signal, and then intergenic DNA uh, at the other end. So we have promoter elements. These here are close to plus one, so we call those the proximal pro promoter. And then there may be distal elements, and those are farther upstream. As Dr. Albritton will tell you, the start site for a protein, uh, this would be the uh, coding for the initiating methionine. And the ribosome gets onto this 5' end in order to translate to make the protein. And then the protein ends where uh, the message has a stop codon. So if we're looking at the promoter proximal elements, uh, what you see is these two, and typically one of them is the repressor binding site, if there's a repressor in this system, and the other is the RNA polymerase binding site. And then upstream of that is where uh, you 
those are typically activator protein binding sites, but you'll see examples where it's even something different from that. Okay. To get to an operon, bacteria lot, has lots of operons. What it does is to uh, put them in a sequence like this, and it just makes a long uh, stretch of the DNA. And the key feature is that there are two or more genes in this single messenger RNA. So the ribosome will bind at the ribosome binding site. Gene 1 gets backwards transcription. It gets translated uh, by the ribosome. And then when we get to the end of the operon, there is typically a row independent terminator. And you'll see it in the RNA. It forms a stem loop structure. All right. So if we talk about RNA molecules in E. coli, what you see is a very uh, different amounts of the different RNAs. So the ribosomal RNA is actually 80% of the cell RNA. And of course, uh, that's in your ribosomes. Uh, sedimentation coefficient of the ribosomal RNA is 23S and 16S. So there are two pieces. And there's often made a 5S, and then the transfer RNA is a little smaller, and so it is a 4S. You can see the sizes over here, and the difference in those sizes uh, certainly helps to explain why we have such uh, a huge amount of the RNA in the ribosomes. Uh, the ribosomes are stable. And so uh, we can use those. Transfer RNA, you know, uh, is used to translate the messenger RNA into a protein. They carry the amino acids. Messenger RNA is what we mostly deal with. And yet it's only 5% uh, and has a very heterogeneous mass and number of nucleotides. What has come out over oh, 10 or 20 years, I guess, that seems recent to me, uh, are the small regulatory RNAs. They are less than 1% of the total RNA. They are different in size. They're also heterogeneous in terms of the number of bases. And those are the ones that are used for regulation, and we're going to go through several examples uh, of those. You have them in both prokaryotes and eukaryotes. All right, I'm going to talk first about the proteins. We'll then move on and talk about the DNA. So the protein elements have a there's a single RNA polymerase. It catalyzes three prime to five prime linkages. 
This is typically uh, the higher, the earlier in the gene, and then at the five prime end, what you get is the five prime, sorry, did that backwards. So you get five prime to three prime is the way, the direction of transcription. And the polymerase is adding a five prime to a bottom strand end, top strand end. You'll see uh, that is bound and joined to the existing three prime end. Sigma factors confer promoter specificity. Activators increase transcription. Repressors decrease transcription. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about NUS-A and the Greek proteins. Um, NUS-A causes pauses. GRI-A and GRI-B are involved in proofreading. I mentioned Rho a minute or two ago. That's involved in some of the termination reactions. So we have Rho-dependent and Rho-independent. And then nucleoid proteins. And we think about these nucleoid proteins in the same way that you would think about a eukaryotic histone, except that uh, we don't necessarily wrap them around uh, the polymerase. One important feature is proteins usually diffuse through the cytoplasm. And so that allows them to act anywhere on the DNA or anywhere else. Um, and so they are transacting factors. They can be made someplace up the DNA or down the DNA uh, and diffuse to the genes that they are going to regulate. DNA elements We've mentioned a couple already. You've got your promoter, which is the polymerase binding site. The operator is your repressor binding site. Uh, the coding sequence, I mentioned that we have a polycystronic message that's coded in an operon. This polycystronic means that it has multiple genes, multiple um, genes that can be translated. Termination, we just talked about that. And one of the key features of the DNA elements is they only affect expression of the nearby DNA. So the, they are cis-acting. And what you will find is that uh, both that you will use the characteristic of are they cis-acting or are they trans-acting, that would be a characteristic that you could use to decide is this a DNA regulatory element that I'm dealing with or is this in fact a diffusible protein. Those come in particularly when you're doing genetics and 
uh, want to determine what the proteins are and what the DNA sites are. There are multiple steps in transcription. First, there's the binding of the RNA polymerase, and that is in a closed complex. What does that mean? That means that the polymerase has not yet opened the strands in the transcription bubble. Second is the isomerization of the polymerase that leads to an open complex, and that open complex then um, is ready to begin transcribing. Initiation of the RNA chain, clearance, the promoter of the uh, RNA polymerase then adds your uh, basis to the RNA chain, and promoter clearance is when that uh, polymerase actually leaves the promoter sequences and is transcribing uh, the producing the messenger RNA. Elongation is what the polymerase is doing as it's adding bases uh, to each of the uh, adding bases to your strand. And there can be pausing during elongation. And pausing influences termination to a sense um, it will, a paused RNA polymerase is sometimes acted upon in ways that are different if you were just making uh, an RNA. Termination, I told you about uh, the row-dependent de terminator and row-independent terminator. The majority of terminators that you'll be dealing with uh, is going to be the row-independent terminator. I showed you it looks like a lollipop. That's the structure that the RNA makes. And so there will be uh, termination when there's release of the RNA polymerase and the RNA from that DNA. And importantly, each of these steps can be a target for regulation. So we're no longer thinking promoter making a transcript, making a protein. We are thinking about how each of these steps occurs and what factors influence uh, where the termination occurs at, or where the regulation occurs in each of these steps. Uh, a given messenger RNA or gene may not have uh, any regulation of many of these, but if you look at the group of genes and proteins produced from them, you will, you will find uh, these in a sequence at each of them. All right, so what do you need for transcription? Very simple. You need the polymerase, and the key to the polymerase is it's a DNA-dependent polymerase, then it's, you have a double-stranded DNA template. Key factor is 
There's no primer. So in DNA synthesis, there is a primer and the DNA polymerase adds to it. In the case of transcription, there is no primer and initiation occurs uh, by having the ribonucleoside triphosphates, divalent cation, typically magnesium, occasionally uh, manganese, and you can actually use manganese instead of magnesium if you want it to make mistakes. So uh, that's sometimes used actually for mutagenesis. So here's the enzymology. On the left side here, you see the growing chain, and there is an attack of this uh, element, these, the OH. It attacks the triphosphate, which is here, and that then connects that, those two bases by the phosphate. So we have a phosphodiester structure in the RNA. This event releases the two uh, distal phosphate residues. And it does that by producing a pyrophosphate and then the pyrophosphate is cleaved into two phosphates incorporating uh, water. So it is this process which drives the synthesis forward in a forward reaction. Otherwise, you could go back and forth. So we have catalysis that goes from the 5' prime to the 3' prime direction. And the NTP is going to react only at the 3' prime end. Okay, I'll do that. Ah, yes. And what base you add is determined by the Watson-Crick uh, base pair. Here is the equation that summarizes this action. You have uh, a stretch of RNA. You add the NTP to RNTP. That goes then to add one residue and a phosphate that's released. The E. coli RNA polymerase catalyzes uh, RNA about 50 nucleotides per second. That's not a hard and fast rule because it's a combination of synthesis and pausing. Um, it's highly processive, and what that means is that you're, it's making a 5,000 nucleotide transcript on its own and up to uh, 20,000 or 30,000 nucleotides long when it's assisted by an anti-termination factor. And we'll talk about those more uh, in the next lecture. So 
in eukaryotes, transcription and translation are coupled. What happens is, this is your direction of transcription. Polymerase would start here, making the RNA strand, and the, the little blue circles there, those are the ribosomes, and they're translating the RNA into protein. And so you see these get, as polymerase moves down the DNA, uh, the RNA that's being produced gets longer and longer. All right. So, degradation. One of the key features of messenger RNA is that it is unstable. So it serves transiently to make uh, a protein product. And so you'll see this going on in the cell completely. And you'll also find that RNA degradation can also be occurring. So uh, there will be particular sites if uh, the RNA has pause sites in it, for example, you can sometimes get cleavage of the RNA. And we'll go through that in a minute. All right, very important. There are no, there's no coupling in eukaryotes, right? The messenger RNA is made in the nucleus, but translation occurs in the cytoplasm, because that's where the ribosomes are. So uh, that's an important distinction. This is just a pretty picture I thought I'd show you. Uh, this is the this is the DNA. If you can see that thin strand. Here's the polymerase. It then is uh, making the RNA strand which is getting covered by the ribosomes and translating. You do not see uh, the protein peptide chain that's being made. What you see are the ribosomes. There's been uh, structural analysis that's been done with uh, many polymerases at this point. Uh, e. coli is one of the typical ones that we talk about, and yeast is the other one. And the reason that this uh, slide is here is to show you just how similar the structures are. Here in yeast, ah yes, you're looking at this from one side, flip it over 180 degrees, and then you're looking at it at the opposite <coughs> side. C is the channel that the, uh, the, the DNA, sorry, the polymerase is going to close that channel. So the beginning of binding uh, will occur this way, where it's open. When it binds to the promoter and starts translating the RNA, then that channel is closed. And what that does is make the association of the polymerase with the DNA to be more stable. These are often called 
in the these are often called uh, the hollow enzyme with the channel open and the core polymerase with the channel closed. And you can just see, you, you can recognize that these are structural. These are similar structure. All right, here's the real structure. Uh, this one is from a bacteria. Used it from TAC, which is one of the thermophiles. And the reason is that proteins in bacteria that are found at high temperature are folded and more stable. So it turns out if you want to do structural work, many times uh, the protein that you're going to be using will come from the thermophile. This one is the yeast. And what you can see is that each of these colors reflects a subunit. And the color shows you which uh, subunit it is. That is, it shows you that it's a different protein strand than <coughs> the yellow ones or the blue ones. And you can kind of see, if you look at them, the yellow looks like it's in a, about the same place. Here's the blue. And so it's another way of just looking at this. All right. The E. coli RNA polymerase is found in two forms. One, as I showed you, was the core polymerase. And that contains two copies of the alpha subunit, one each of beta, beta prime, and omega. That's what's in core. If you go to holoenzyme, that also adds the sigma factor. And it's the sigma factor that determines the specificity of binding to the promoter. So our assembly pathway, uh, and that there are multiple different sigma proteins, and we'll look at those in a bit. The assembly pathway, the dimer of alpha, then you add beta, beta prime, and omega, and when you add sigma, then that's the holoenzyme. So if you don't have the sigma factor, if you're only working with the core, what you see is it finds DNA non-specifically. But the sequence specificity of each promoter, sigma is what provides that specificity. A little bit about each of uh, these subunits. The beta subunit is uh, referred to as RPOB, large protein, and it functions as a catalytic subunit. Uh, there's the tunnel that the DNA is going to go through, and this forms the roof of the tunnel. It's a target of rifampicin. Rifampicin is, is an antibiotic. Uh, and there are RIF-resistant mutants 
that you can get in the beta subunit. Beta prime is also catalytic. It makes the floor of the tongue. And it's the uh, uh, subunit that binds magnesium. We get to alpha, and alpha would be RPOA, much smaller protein, and it's divided into two domains. The N-terminal domain is involved in assembly of beta and beta prime. And you saw that in the last slide, that we go from, uh, from a dimer of alpha, and beta adds to that, and then the others sequentially. The alpha CTV makes a contact with the upstream promoter elements and also with activators. So it's involved in a sense of going to help the, the RNA polymerase bind to the promoter. And it can interact with activators. Omega is RPFZ. It actually is a recent uh, discovery in the original purification of RNA polymerase. The omega factor was the last protein before the um, before the last step of purification of the polymerase. And so uh, Burgess said, well, here's the final stable complex. I got rid of this other protein. And it turns out that the other protein really does participate. It's a subunit of uh, the polymerase, but mostly it is involved in beta prime folding and the stability of the polymerase. It kind of hold, holds some of those uh, interacting regions together. And finally here is uh, Sigma 70. And Sigma 70 we call the housekeeping Sigma factor. What that means is it's used for recognition of a vast array of genes. A um, lot less other types of sigma factor have more limited uh, use in the cell. If you look at the DNA sequences, and there have been many, many sequences done for RNA polymerase in every bacterium you can imagine. And what you see if you line up those sequences, each of these red places is conserved. Conserved through these many, many uh, polymerases. So your domain boundary here is what you would see here between those two domains. Uh, here, we don't have a this is together, just like these two are together. And those are the conserved regions 
and we'll talk about what those different regions do. Sigma subunit, we uh, think about this a lot, and what you'll see is that it's been divided into specific regions. Those correspond with the red spots or the red lines. The first part of sigma actually inhibits its binding to DNA. You say that's kind of strange because you want it to bind to DNA, but only when it's in the context of an RNA polymerase. So by itself, sigma does not bind DNA. And that's because these uh, fold over and prevent, they basically hide the DNA binding site in the protein. When the, uh, here's region 2.1, that's involved in binding beta prime. 2.3 binds the single-stranded DNA, and this would happen in uh, the transcription bubble, where the two DNA strands have been separated. Minus 10 recognition. Minus 10, we'll look at it. This is a promoter proximal element, uh, very important to the binding of uh, with holoenzyme to the DNA. Minus 35 is the same way. And so what you have is sigma by itself doesn't bind to DNA. And region 2.3 binds the single non-template strand in the transcription bubble, where the two strands of the DNA have been separated. And then region 3.1 contacts the extended minus 10 region of the promoter. I'm sorry, but I have to sit there. Sigma factors recognize different promoter sequences. And that makes sense, right? That's how a uh, sigma factor that determines the binding specificity. So we talked about sigma 70, and it's used, recognized, and used for most of the genes. There are two elements within the promoter that are recognized by the sigma factor. This is minus 35, this one is minus 10. Different sigma factors recognize different uh, sequences. So here's a sigma factor that is induced by heat shock. What you see is it's a much longer uh, stretch of the DNA sequence. Uh, which is recognized by polymerase with sigma H. Sigma F are the genes for flagella and hemotaxis. They, again, 
have different sequences. Sigma S, both for stationary phase and the stress response, it also has uh, the same minus 35, minus 10, uh, except that the minus 35 is less important in distinguishing uh, that this is a sigma S promoter. And on this side, what you see is uh, it's added a C to this minus 10 consensus. And then in addition, uh, the region from minus 1 to minus 7 is also uh, AT rich. So we haven't defined specific bases in that region but it tends to be AT rich. And finally, we have sigma N, or sigma 54. Uh, it controls the genes for nitrogen metabolism and stress response. And it's really quite different from sigma 70. So all of these others are part of the sigma 70 uh, family. That's why you could see the uh, shared sequence, the conserved sequences. For sigma N, we have a very different uh, protein. It is not uh, conserved, doesn't fall into the sigma 70 family. It recognizes regions at minus 24 and minus 12. And you'll notice those are pretty different from what sigma 70 recognizes. So, with the sigma factors, uh, what's been done is to identify the gene. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to remember that, uh, with the exception of RPOD, which is sigma 70. Uh, and RPON, which is the sigma 54. So just you can talk about them in this form, what sigma it is, and its name. So there are about 15 genes that are regulated uh, to control nitrogen access in the cell and uh, the use of nitrogen in regulation. There's heat shock response genes, those are sigma H. I guess we went through those. This one, RPOE, is extreme heat shock and is also involved in uh, extracytoplasmic genes. And finally, the ferric citrate transporter. And it also recognizes some extra plasmic genes or trans transcribes them. So what's important here, besides the fact that there's a lot of them, is if you look in the cell at any time in particular, if they're in a growth phase, what you see is many, many copies of RPOD making the sigma 70. A little bit of 
a little bit of RPLN, that's the sigma 54 nitrogen response genes, a little bit of RPOF, those are for the cells that are making flagella, and uh, very, very low levels of everything else. The relative proportions here you can see are somewhat different and in particular in the stationary phase the RPOS is RPOS, okay. um, what you see is that you're getting RPOS specific transcription as well as the others so stationary phase and growing phase have different properties. So the concentration of the sigma factor is different under different growth conditions. And I just mentioned sigma H will increase after a heat shock. Uh, sigma S is low during growth. You don't see any on this scale. Whereas you see a lot of it in stationary phase. So some regulation is occurring just by which sigma factor is recognizing the promoter. In the cell, there are about 2,000 RNA polymerase molecules per cell. There are about 4,000 genes or 5,000 genes. And so that immediately tells you that uh, there is competition of the RNA polymerase for these 4,000 genes. What you see is polymerase is typically involved in transcription, and that would be up here with these pink things. Um, and so that's in the, in the range of about 1,300 molecules in the growth phase. Uh, and then there's other RNA polymerase here in blue, which is not involved in transcription. And there's about 700 of those. So the sigma factors are competing with each other. The number of molecules that are present in the cell and the binding constant they have for core together determine the proportion of the different holoenzymes that are in the cell. Haven't told you about them, but there are also anti-sigma factors that are involved in this regulation. And they bind to specific sigmas and inhibit their binding to core. So transcription and the factors that compose the RNA polymerase are highly regulated um, and most are involved in any given time with a large percentage of molecules for the sigma set. Okay, sigma 54, very different 
from the other sigma factors. Sigma 54, as I showed you, recognizes minus 12 and minus 24 in the promoter. Here, it differs from sigma 70. RNA polymerase sigma 54 is always bound to the DNA in a very stable, closed complex. In a sense, it's sitting there waiting to be used. There's high DNA binding affinity, but very low copy number. Structurally, very different from the sigma family. You would, you would not see, remember those regions of homology, you won't see the sigma-like factor, sigma-70-like family, uh, has a different consensus sequences uh, in the protein. Here's again another major difference, and that is this sigma requires an activator protein that binds to an enhancer. Very few enhancers in E. coli or in other bacteria. You find them, but they're not nearly as high number as there are in eukaryotes. So enhancers are not frequent in the eubacteria. And again, big difference from sigma 70. Sigma 54 remains bound to the promoter after the polymerase has cleared uh, the promoter region and elongation is taking, take, taking place. So how do we think this enhancer may work? Well, the first thing we know is it requires NTRC. It has to bind to the enhancer region. And it activates transcription of about 100 genes, something like 30 operons. And those are involved in nitrogen metabolism. And one of them that's here that's a key player is GLIN-A. All right, so we start off in the cell with um, nothing bound to the enhancer. The polymerase containing sigma 54 is bound in a closed complex of the GLIN-A gene. So GLIN-A is simply uh, glutamine synthetase, and it's involved in assimilation of ammonia into glutamine, and that is the, remain, the main nitrogen source inside the cell. So we go from having this uh, sequence of genes and functions of proteins. When nitrogen is low, NTRC uh, is phosphorylated by NTRB. And that's what those P's are. It binds to the enhancers. And then it forms, first it forms a tetramer, and then it binds to the enhancer sequence. And DNA looping then 
allows that NTRC phosphorylation tetramer to contact the bound RNA polymerase. What's involved in that is uh, DNA looping, as you can see. Uh, that's what lets these come into contact with each other. And then the open complex is formed and the RNA polymerase starts transcribing the gene. There are multiple ways that uh, that loop can be created. In one case, um, there, are, there are DNA bind, DNA bending proteins that can bind uh, to this region and leave, uh, let that loop form more frequently. Um, IHF is uh, integration host factor, and it in particular is often found to form such loops. All right, what are our promoter elements? And how do we look at them? All right, in this uh, slide, what you see are sequences of different E. coli promoters, but all of them are strong E. coli promoters. When you line up their sequences, you can see how closely uh, they are similar in the minus 35 region, uh, particularly in the strong promoters, which you see is uh, this consensus, TTG, ACA, and when we talk about the minus 35 region, that T is normally not there, that last base in the minus 35. Um, it's because it is much less frequent in consensus than these others. And you can also see here that some of the bases are found more often than others. And what you see then is those are in fact the TTG of the minus 35 region is highly specific and essential. Essentially, that's what you're looking for in a promoter. That's what the polymerase is seeing. Uh, so it's more most important to have TTG in this segment and the uh, TAT in the minus 10 region. <coughs> and this is actually the consensus sequence for minus 10. So it's TAT, AAT. So it's those first three and the last base uh, of the minus 10. And if you mutate at those positions, you get st strong decrease in transcription. So the polymerase is not being able to recognize uh, the promoter as well and bind as closely when you change those particular positions. 
here's the lap promoter. And what you see here is there's a minus 35. And we don't have uh, a G where we would normally expect it. It is not as strong as some of the other promoters. Uh, here again you have TAT, and actually if you change that, so you have TAT, AAT, that it creates an up mutation. So the consensus that we talk about, here's the minus 35, the minus 10, here's the spacing between those two elements is 17 base pairs plus or minus one. Uh, so that one way you can look for promoters in a DNA sequence uh, is you look for the TTG and then ask whether you have downstream of that. Is it uh, giving you the right distance? Plus one is here. Plus one is the first nucleotide of the RNA molecule. And we determine that experimentally. And what's been done here, this, this is looking like, hey, we've got great conservation. Nope, we've got great conservation only because there we made, uh, sorry, we let the DNA in this region, see those black balls, those are spacers that are put in just in this sequence. They don't exist for real. Um, but what they do is they allow the uh, sequences to be aligned, which we wouldn't be able to do nearly as well without them. Plus one, that also has been found to be either an A or a G. And again, we've only been able to draw this consensus because we've lined them up uh, by adding different bases, extra bases. Didn't talk about it. Extendus, extended minus 10 promoter, and this has just immediately upstream of the minus 10 sequence is a T, G, and any nucleotide. And as it turns out, um, in genes that don't have a minus 35 sequence, TGN added to the minus 10 makes that promoter function. So it can work on promoters that lack minus 35 regions. And those are key. You'll see that uh, more in promoters that bind activator proteins and that are regulated by them. Probably you already know about DNA's one footprinting, but I just want to remind you what you're looking at here 
is <clears throat> part of a gel, and uh, we're using DNAs one to cleave the DNA uh, more or less randomly. Right? That's this is what it would look like. Uh, here is our lane. Lane one has no protein. Two, three, and four have increasing amounts of the C2 DNA binding protein. And so you see over here where you use a lot, you completely cover up those natural positions for cleavage, and so you get a blank here uh, because these are now uh, each of the DNA segments are covered by the protein. If you use less protein binding, then you see uh, that we, we can see some of these bases that we can't see uh, when we have the high concentration. And so this is what a DNA's one footprint would be called. That's what we call this. All right. The reason I just showed you that is because on this slide we're going to talk about the lac operon and footprints. So we have our sequence here. Uh, this is the lac operon. And there is here, the red is the footprint with its ends defined just as we did here. So this would be the last base under the footprint. And here's this one also. Um, and so those would be the two endpoints that we would call endpoints here and here. So if we go back to this, then the RNA polymerase binds to this region, and the footprint includes the minus 35 and minus 10 and plus 1, and that's good because that's what we need for polymerase binding and for transcription. The repressor protein is a little farther down, uh, and you can see that those proteins, the footprints of those proteins overlap. We look upstream, and here is binding for an activator protein. Uh, we call it CAP, and, uh, or CRP. You'll see those used interchangeably. And when it is bound with cyclic AMP, it can then bind to the promoter. And function as an activator. Notice that your footprints here can overlap. And you think, well, how does that happen? I mean, that's kind of strange because you need all of these proteins, in particular these two, to be present at the same time. What happens is DNAs1 can't cut any closer than two to three base pairs from another protein. And the reason is that the cutting site is internal to your protein as it's bound, and so the DNAs can't get any closer than 
two or three base pairs away. So that contributes to the overlap here. Uh, we have extra bases here and extra bases here. And so that's one way that we can get this. The other way is that different proteins can interact with the major and minor groups on opposite sides of the DNA helix. So you're going to see your DNA is surrounded by protein. Uh, and in, on the one side, it's inserted reacting with the major group. And on the opposite side, uh, it will be interacting within the minor group. Many more proteins interact with the major group, but there are some, some examples where the minor group on the opposite side is in fact um, present. Okay, so another element in these, uh, in the promoter, and this was actually discovered in the 1990s, years and years after we knew about the minus 10 and minus 35. And what happened was uh, there was a group studying the ribosomal RNA promoters, and what they noticed is that there is a sequence upstream of minus 35 and minus 10, and that sequence is bound by the alpha CTD, C-terminal domain of alpha, contacts this very AT-rich up element and stimulates transcription a lot. And so that's why you find it in these very strong promoters uh, like the ribosomal RNA promoters. So here, in this particular promoter, we have core promoter, minus 10, minus 35, or the extended promoter, and that includes the up element. Uh, and here, we have three yellow spots. Those are bound by the FIS protein. FIS is one of those nucleohistone-like proteins. Not, it's not a histone for sure, but it can serve a similar purpose. It binds to the DNA uh, somewhat randomly, uh, but it also can be, can be used as an activator protein and pretty much covers that section of the DNA. So we see that both, if you have that long region here for the up element, then both of the alpha CTDs are going to bind to it. They strengthen the overall binding of polymerase to the promoter. And what the FIS sites do is that they, in this particular gene, they activate transcription. So here they're used as activators uh, 
and not used so much as nucleoid proteins, uh, but they can use, can do both. And the important contacts are between this up element and the first fist site, interaction between that alpha CTD and the fist protein is what stimulates transcription to such high levels. Okay, so we have uh, gone through the bases, the DNA bases and the protein uh, amino acids that are involved in transcription. So this is what we've been talking about. Here is our protein. The DNA above it is in red and yellow and green. And what this slide is showing you is a representation of the binding interactions that I told you about earlier. So we have, let's see, if we look at this upstream region, then in this case, uh, we could see binding of the alpha CTDs of the two alpha subunits in that polymerase. They bind in this up element region, and so they're red. These yellow regions include the extended minus 10 and the minus 10, typical minus 10, and the minus 35 element here in this yellow. So what happens, the way we think about this, um, here is one of your sigma contact positions. Uh, you see the region 4, region 3, and region 2 are visible in this uh, representation. And so we think about it's good to think about the different proteins of the RNA polymerase as working as a team. That is what determines how uh, strong the interaction is, and that determines how active the protein is. What you see is if there is uh, less let's just say here, uh, less, fewer of those specific bases at the minus 10 element, so that it's not binding really tightly there. What you see is if you have tight binding at the minus 35 sequence, that can compensate for the weak minus 10 sequence. So you've got multiple proteins interacting with the DNA, and 
this is how you might think of what the promoter is doing and the fact that whereas I told you you don't get a nucleoid, you don't form a, what do you call it, your nucleosomes, thank you. <laughs> Um, you, we don't have nucleosomes with multiple wrapping, uh, but we do have some curvature which occurs. And there's a small amount that would never fit in it, never work in a nucleosome. Uh, but here, that little bit of uh, bending also helps open to make the open complex. So you'll see it many times um, in review articles as this, that's showing what you see here. Uh, what you can see is beta and beta prime. Here are the purple and the blue. Here are the four regions of sigma separate domains of sigma. Those domains are independently folded. They're all connected together. Um, and so you see the minus 10 is bound by region 2. Minus 35 is bound by region 4. The TGN, as I recall, is region 2.3. Forget that. I will tell you what TGN is in, because I don't remember. Uh, but looks to me like it's in, I think it's region 2.3. 2. 3 point something. Has to be in 3 point because that's what they showed you. Okay. So, and here is your alpha NTD, internal domain. It interacts with beta and beta prime, and that's how the protein, that's how polymerase assembly is working. Uh, it's the two alpha NTDs that then bind beta and beta prime, and then form your uh, RNA polymerase. Notice, here's the alpha CTD. C terminal domain. And if there is an up element in that promoter, you see that the alpha CTD is binding in the up element. And as we'll see in uh, Thursday's lecture, you can have these activators. I think it's actually next Tuesday. Um, the alpha-CTD binding can occur immediately adjacent to the polymerase, as, as it is shown here, immediately upstream of your core promoter. In the case of regulated promoters, there are some in which an activator protein binds upstream but makes contacts with the alpha-CTD. Or you can see that the activator binds here instead of the alpha-CTD, in which case the alpha-CTDs bind upstream 
of the activator. And you'll see uh, that that's how many different promoters get regulated. Those are uh, the elements that you need. Questions? No? Okay. Terribly boring? Because you have the handouts? <laughs> but you're supposed to add things, right? <laughs> so, you didn't mention the affinity of the sigma factors for the polymerase. So, how do those really low copy number sigma factors, do they have higher affinity for the polymerase? Yes. So, that's different. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's how they're grabbing. Right. And that plus the fact that if they're needed in a particular situation, their concentration goes up, but it's basically the, the tightness of the bond. Yeah, no, I agree. 